Well, uh, why don't we, for this morning, thanks for sharing all that. I was excited to hear about it. But let's open up back to the book of Acts. Luke's account in the book of Acts. If you remember, Luke and Acts are one volume. So it's really fun. If you walk from here over to here with Pastor Jerry, which I, you all should do. That's a priority on Sunday morning. But you're going and hearing, really, Luke all morning. Every time you come on Sunday mornings. Because Luke is the author of Acts and Luke is the author of Luke. So we kind of go forward, then go back. But if you start to cement in your mind, this is one volume. And they're supposed, they went around to the early church together. It's just helpful to see all the connections that Luke makes. But as we begin our time, I want to take you back to July of 1741. Does anyone know what happened in Connecticut in July of 1741? I would be really impressed if someone knew. But you may. Jonathan Edwards. That's right. What sermon did he preach? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That is exactly right. Well done, Mark. You paid attention in American history. How many of you heard that story in American history growing up? It's typically in most textbooks. Because when you're studying the Great Awakening in, the, in America... In North America, you're going to study about Jonathan Edwards as being the catalyst behind the great awakening of, they would just, secular people would just call it a spiritual revival. We would call it God saving masses of people in the northeast of our country. And much of that was perpetuated by a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, July of 1741. If you haven't read much about Jonathan Edwards, I encourage you to read him, read Ian Murray's biography on him. He is a phenomenal, phenomenal theologian and pastor. But let me tell you the story of Enfield. If you haven't heard it, you've probably heard the name Enfield. Bands named themselves after Enfield. Blogs named themselves after Enfield. Enfield was the location in Connecticut where he preached this really unique sermon where God outpoured His Spirit in a unique way. Well, Jonathan Edwards was pastoring in... Um, uh, just a horse ride down from the Connecticut River near Northampton. So he took a horse ride down during this July afternoon, 1741, and he was actually going to listen to someone else preach. You may not know this, but the day that Jonathan Edward preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he was not scheduled to preach. So Jonathan Edwards rides down and he shows up and he thinks he's going to listen to a sermon. The other man that's supposed to preach that day gets ill. And so they asked Jonathan Edwards if he can preach. He happens to have, in his briefcase, his notes from a sermon he had just preached to his church a week earlier, he would say, with little effect, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon has famous imagery. If you haven't read it, you can go read it online. It talks about a spider dangling over a flame compared to us outside of knowing Christ, our situation, we're hanging from a spider web's thread over the judgment. He talks about a heavy lead weight sliding toward a bottomless gulf representing our desperate condition. We cannot stop the pull. The weight is just pulling us down to the judgment. He describes God as having a bent bow that makes us keenly aware God is not pleased with us and if we do not repent that He will bring judgment. What's interesting about that sermon is those that were there say there was nothing in his style or his presentation that could account for what happened that day in Enfield. 
One eyewitness, Stephen Williams, writes this in his diary. Here's a first-hand account of an attendee that afternoon in July. We went over to Enfield where we met dear Mr. Edwards of Northampton who preached a most awakening sermon from these words of Deuteronomy 32-35. And before the sermon was done, now just listen to this, there was great moaning and crying it went out through the whole house and people were shouting, What shall we do to be saved? Oh no, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. So yet ye, the minister, was obligated to desist. Yet shrieks and cries were, the, were piercing and amazing. Think about that. Wow. Many souls were converted to Christ that day. Many people came to know Christ that miraculous day in 1741. And what's happening that day is Jonathan Edwards brought a sermon and preached on sin. And the Spirit of God took that sermon and awakened people to their desperate condition and their need for a Savior. God used that sermon miraculously, a sermon that a week ago seemed to have little effect, but God decided to send His Spirit on that day and awaken a bunch of dead hearts and tell them to live. It was a Spirit-produced response from a penetrating sermon on sin. And what's fascinating about that story is while that is our church history that we read post-Acts, we have a very similar account in the inspired church history in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is inspired church history. And so if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we actually witnessed a sermon just like that, didn't we? We witnessed Peter preaching on sin to a group of Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, a penetrating sermon. And if you remember... He told them basically, you executed your Messiah. You crucified Him. You rejected the prophet Joel. You rejected David's message. And if you remember, he quotes three Old Testament passages. And I neglected to say one last time. But Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm Psalm 110. Those are all quoted in there. And if you remember, Peter's sermon to them was basically, you men, if you remember... Just look here in Acts 2. You men are looking at what God is doing and you're attributing it to a drunken man. Notice Acts 2, verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk. Why is he responding that way? Well, go back to verse 12. After he was done, after all the signs that God had brought and the wonders God had brought, and that men had been able to speak with tongues that were not their own as if it was their native language, verse 12 happens. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. What is going on there? If you remember, Peter is there, and the Spirit of God comes from heaven, right? Upon the twelve. And there's lightning bolts and there's wind as if there's a storm, but there's no change in the climate. And then the Spirit indwells these believers with a supernatural, unique cause in their life to help them to speak languages that were not their own to people that it it was their language. And they were able to speak speak the, the glories of God to people that didn't know that they spoke their language. So you had languages they never knew before and they were speaking them as if they were their native tongue. Instead of people going, wow, God is among us. They said, "Ah, those must be a bunch of drunks. And so Peter responds and says, oh, you're going to attribute 
the works of God to what a man does when he's inebriated, you need to rethink your arrogant conclusions. And he preaches that sermon that I just described. A sermon on their sin, their rebellion, their rejection. If you remember, I said that here basically in the eight stunning scenes that are unfolding, he gives them five reasons, as I said, why they should rethink their arrogant conclusions. And I just mentioned those a moment ago. The rejection of Joel's prophecy, the rejection of David's comments about the resurrection, the executing of the Messiah. And the fact is, at the end of the day, all of that was leading to, they were acting flippantly in light of the fact that Christ was going to return and He was going to deal with His enemies. And they were currently His enemies. And they were laughing. They were mocking. They thought, ah, we came in town for Pentecost. Who remembers what Pentecost was? Anybody remember? What was Pentecost? What was the day of Pentecost? What made it significant? 50 days after the Passover. When was Christ executed? On Passover. So we're 50 days post-execution post of Christ and a bunch of Jews that should have worshipped Christ showed up to town, a million or so, and were still mocking that bloody wooden cross as they walked by it to go commit their worship to God, the God they said they loved, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God that promised He'd send Jesus, and they rejected Him. So here's this crowd gathering. There's thousands here because we're going to see 3,000 plus are saved. And they're all here and they hear this sermon, much like Jonathan Edwards' sermon. It was all about their sin and their rebellion. And what's amazing here is what we see on the pages of Scripture, friends, and what Luke wants the early church to see is that when the church is born, it's an act of God, it's done by God, it's produced by the Spirit, no man could produce it, and He does it, listen, by means of the preaching of the Word, preaching on sin, and the Spirit superintending His message to people's hearts. Luke never wanted the church to deviate from that reality. When churches are born, they're born of the Spirit. God plants them. The way He plants them is He saves people. The way He saves people is preaching. The foolishness of preaching saves people. And the Spirit superintends that. And the Spirit comes in and literally, as we're going to see, stabs them in the heart with the blade of His Word and creates new life and churches are born. Luke never wanted the church to deviate from that approach to ministry. Think about that. This is your purest representation of the church because it's the first ever church. It was the first Christian sermon. And so for all of us here now, some 2,000 years later, this becomes very instructive because it becomes for us an example of what we never want to deviate from. If you're sitting here today and you're going, what should church look like? What should we be spending our time on? What should we be preaching about? What should it look like in our evangelism with people? What should we think about conversion? What do believers look like? You can't get any more pure than the first day the church is born. They're literally at their, at their inception. And so, at the end of that sermon, on their sin, on their rebellion, scene five. If you've been taking notes, we've had four scenes. And this is our fifth scene. The crowd's spirit-produced response to Peter's sermon. The crowd's spirit-produced response to Peter's sermon. Why do I say spirit-produced? Because what you're about to see is impossible outside of God acting. Notice verse 37. And when they heard this, when they heard what? When they heard the sermon about their execution and rebellion and the fact that they had rejected the Scriptures and they killed their Messiah, and if they weren't there chanting His name, their sin put Him on the cross. When they heard all of that, look at what they said. They were pierced to 
the heart, their soul, their inner life. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Stop there. That is the single most important question anybody can ask. How does a person become right with God? How do I know I can be saved? What do I do when I'm stabbed in the heart by the Spirit of God when His Word is preached? What shall we do? What is being said here, beloved, is nothing less than a supernatural work of God acting on a heart. See that little word heart there? That little word there, heart there, is describing your inner life. So, if you want to, when you see heart in the scriptures, or you see soul in the scriptures, or you see mind in the scriptures, there's overlap on those. So, when you see they were pierced to the heart, think the immaterial part of you that's eternal. The part of you that no man can access. No doctor can grab onto this part of you, even if they're holding your actual heart. This is your soul, your immaterial, the part of you that's eternal, the part of you that only the Spirit of God can penetrate. And look at what it says there. They were pierced in their conscience, you could say, in their soul, in their heart, in their inner life. As one pastor said, they have just experienced soul-piercing conviction. It'd be crucial for the early church to begin to think about conversions this way. It'd be crucial for them to start thinking about the preaching on sin and what response you'd be looking for. Because all through church history and in the early church, there'd be lots of people saying, oh, I want to come to Jesus. I want to be a part of this big movement. But Luke puts in here the account, what happened in response to Peter's sermon, so that people don't underestimate the reality that when sin is spoken on, there's an appropriate response and there's an inappropriate response. Let me tell you an appropriate response when you respond to sin rightly in conversion. Here's what this word pierced means. It's literally the word to be stabbed. It's like having a sharp object. Luke is using language to speak of a sharp object or, or something like a, you know, a thorn that stabs and penetrates deep. It's the language of, listen to this, beloved, deep remorse and inner contrition. Not in response to nothing, but in response to seeing your sin in light of God's holiness. It's being utterly shattered to such a point that you have deep grief and you're troubled and you don't know what to do because you know you cannot save yourself from the condition that you're in. It's a word and a description that, de- that describes countenance, uh, a countenance of terror. Even a visceral response, you'll see this word used, where people are so terrified, you might, you might see the response of weeping and tears and brokenness or just a, a, a cast a shadow over someone's face where they don't know what to say because they're utterly at a loss. An inner stabbing sense in your soul. This is what happens in conversion. This is what Luke is documenting. When a person comes to know Christ, they are first cut deeply to a place that no man can penetrate. And the means and the tools that God uses is His Spirit and the blade of His Word. Notice this uh, cutting here. This deep penetration in their conscience that brings them to their hopelessness. I mean, you imagine that these Jews sitting here, they literally walked into town whistling along, doing their false ceremonial sacrifices, came to worship the God they said they loved, and now they're sitting there shattered in hopeless desperation, not sure what to do because they realize the God they just walked, some of them all the way from Greece, they traveled, that they came to worship, 
who they executed his son is now coming against them. Notice this deep contrition does not lead to self-pity or running back to one's old life. How do you know the condition of their hearts is a genuine brokenness? Notice their question. Brethren, respectfully you might say, men, apostles, Peter, what shall we do? How can I be right with God when I'm experiencing such soul-piercing conviction I've offended Him at such a high degree? You know this question of what shall we do to be right with God? Can you think of somewhere else that shows up in Acts? Anybody think of it? Same, similar scenario. Spirit comes. Some of the apostles are there. They're praying. They're singing. They're teaching. Anybody remember? Certain jailer? The Philippian jailer has almost the exact same response of soul-piercing conviction. Listen to Acts 16.29. The jailer called for lights, rushed and fell trembling before Saul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The right response to soul-piercing conviction is a brokenness and asking God, what can I do to be made right with you? Beloved, When God sends His Spirit, and you know it's a spiritual work, this is the type of conviction that comes to a sinner's heart. If you're a believer here today, you know this because you've experienced it. You've heard preaching on sin. Then you've looked at your life and you've seen your sin. You've thought of God's holiness. You've thought of your condition. And you've been shattered thinking about the God who promised love to you and forgiveness to you and offers you His Son. You've spent your life trampling underfoot the blood of His Son and living in your own rebellion. And when you see that sin in light of His holiness, the only response is, I am devastated. I'm literally cut down deep into my inner life. I have no response to God. You might say this, the only blade sharp enough to penetrate the inner life and pierce the soul is the Word of God. You know why that's encouraging, friends, in your evangelism, when you're ministering to people? Don't think you need a new technique. Don't think you should soften your message. They need to come to the end of themselves and be utterly shattered of their condition before they can be pierced by the Word of God to this degree, which will lead to true repentance. You think about it. What, let me just ask you something. What happens if a church or a ministry softens their approach and stops preaching on sin? What does that cut people off from, guys? What does it cut them off from? What? Salvation. Salvation. I mean, how unloving. To preach shallow on the doctrine of sin, nothing could be more unloving. You're like a physician who has the cure, but you will not offer it. Churches today that don't preach on sin and don't unleash the Word so it can penetrate the heart and pierce the soul are unloving. They don't love their people. If you loved your people, you preach on sin so they can see their sin and respond to Christ. To not preach on sin is, well, it's malpractice for a pastor. He shouldn't be in the pulpit if he's not going to preach on sin. Peter, earliest sermon, first Christian sermon, what do you think the evangelistic sermons would have looked like through the rest of Acts? They looked just like this. Who would he learn it from? The prophets? John the Baptist? Jesus. You know why this is so encouraging? Because what you have in your hands, friends, that Bible that you're holding, it is 
the means God uses when He decides to take His Spirit and put it in a heart to make soul-piercing conviction penetrate a part of the inner life that you could not touch on your own. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than what, guys? A two-edged sword. A better translation that might be a two-edged scalpel. It pierces. There it is. There's our idea. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it's able to, listen, it's able to divide between thoughts and intentions. Hebrews 4.12. Ephesians 6.17. The sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. So what you have here in Acts 2 in response to this sermon is nothing less than the Spirit of God starting a supernatural work that's going to lead to repentance of more than 3,000 souls. One commentator says this on this soul-piercing conviction. Far more than a feeling of these hearers were stirred out, pierced through means in a deadly way by the exposure of it which Peter had made the entire previous attitude of unbelief, unbelief it was struck a deadly blow. Listen to this. These men felt utterly crushed. Denial on their part was impossible. The question they asked is a full admission of their guilt. Do you remember when God saved you? I remember when God saved me. 2007, I was a Calvinist. That means I believed in a system of theological doctrines and that uh, God's sovereign, man's unable, man's supreme. I said I believed in it. I didn't. I had a view on the end times. I actually was a premillennial, pre-tribulation unbeliever. I taught Bible studies. I went to church. I was known as the guy in baseball, as the one the chaplains would talk to. I was the guy that everyone looked to and said, oh, you want to meet the good Christian on the team? Go find Darren. He's a really good Christian. And trust me, I was committed to keeping that reputation. I wanted to be known as the good Christian. But in the summer of 2007, I'll never forget it. All of a sudden, I started reading the Scriptures and seeing them more clearly. And I remember studying the law of God. I remember studying James' comment that if you break one law, you've broken them all. And I remember all of a sudden, in this pierce-to-the-soul type of moment, I realized, I'm done. I may profess all these things. I may put on all these Christian activities. I may go to church. I've never seen my sin like that. I've never seen my rebellion. I've never been stabbed in the heart by the Spirit. <laughs> and what was it? I saw my sin. I saw my rebellion. And for the first time, Christ was no longer a get-out-of-hell-free card. He was no longer a nice attachment to my life. I just wanted to know whatever I could do for Him to save me. And I just started praying, God, save me. If I'm not a Christian, save me. I was so shattered over my sin. And with soul-piercing conviction, God helped me see that. And all of a sudden... My sin, in contrast to Jesus, He didn't just become an historical figure that I read about and told everybody else about. He became precious to me. Absolutely precious. But it was only in light of my sin. If you're a Christian, you've experienced that. Deep, penetrating, soul-crushing, soul-piercing, jabbed-in-the-heart-by-the-spirit type of pain. You know how I know that's the Spirit's work? John 16, 8. And when He comes, the Spirit, here will be His ministry. He'll convict the world concerning what? Sin. What if the preacher doesn't preach on sin? How would people even know? Righteousness and judgment. That is the Spirit's ministry, beloved. 
Sometimes, I don't know about you, I'll talk to people, but I get concerned where they're at spiritually. And I'll ask them, hey, tell me your testimony. They'll start to tell me about you know, when they think they become a Christian or whatever it is. Maybe you guys have had this experience. And then I'll say, well, they'll start to talk and I'll notice that there's things missing in their, in their testimony. Like they won't talk about the preciousness of Christ and who He is to them. They won't talk about the, the repentance that came in their life when they turned from their old life and turned to Christ. They won't talk about sin. It's more just like this bad behavior, He saved me from my bad circumstances, whatever it is. And I'll say to them, so when in your life did you, be, did you come to a deep understanding of what a rebel you were before the God of the universe who all you've been doing is offending Him your whole life? Well, I would never say I've been like that. You know, I would never say that I'm one that's... You know what I know immediately? If you don't know yourself to have that type of sin and rebellion, then Christ isn't sweet to you. You don't know Him. Deep penetrating conviction is the Spirit's work. Let me read John 16, 8 again. And when He comes, His convicting work will be of sin, righteousness, and judgment. People that don't see their sin don't see their need. That's why this is so crucial in here. Luke is showing the early church that soul-penetrating conviction comes from the preaching of sin, and when people emerge from that, they actually know what to repent of. Now think about this. He's about to tell them to repent. What if He didn't preach on sin? What's He going to tell them to repent of? What? How do, we do the, how do we fulfill the gospel call to repentance if there's not a discussion on sin? A robust discussion on sin. Soul penetrating. You know, this is why some of you can also be thankful because you know it's the Spirit's work that saved you. Because you sat in her sermon after sermon like me. Read lecture after lecture. Read blog after blog. Opened your Bible. I had a MacArthur study Bible I read every morning as an unbeliever. Read my notes. And it wasn't until the Spirit of God came and made His Word live in my heart and penetrated so deep into my soul that I was shattered and broken and I knew my only hope was, my, was Christ. And I just fled to Him in repentance and forgiveness. And He saved me. This is what God does. But many of you, if you wonder, why did I get saved here and not there? Thank the Lord that He attended His Word. <laughs> by His Spirit, and opened up your dead heart and said, live. Because had He not of, you'd still be sitting under sermons with stopped up ears and a rebel heart. So what is the response to this soul-penetrating conviction? What in the world would Peter say? Scene 6. Peter concludes his thundering sermon with one word in many ways, and then he expands on it. But here it is. What do you do when you have soul-penetrating conviction? Maybe you're here today, and you don't know Christ, and you're saying, I never saw my sin like that. I never saw myself as that type of rebel, that I've only offended God and lived for myself and been defaming His name every time I think about myself or live for myself. Here's what Peter told that group. What should we do to be saved? How do we be right with God? Here it is. Verse 38. Repent. Repent. That's fascinating. Old and New Testament, probably one of your most important concepts that you should understand, the doctrine of repentance. What is he saying here? John Calvin says this, he's calling them to have a conversion of their mind. Repentance originally, most of you know this, but repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to have a change of mind, a change of disposition. But you've got to understand, repentance isn't just left alone. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance on one side, faith on the other. Why? Because to repent is to do a 180. When you turn from one thing, you turn towards something. 
So to turn from your sin, the only answer to that is to turn to Christ. If you turn from sin to turn yourself, you haven't repented. Repentance is, I see my sin, I see my rebellion, I see how I've offended God, I turn from that, and I turn to Christ. Repentance and faith. They always go together. True repentance is where you do the opposite of what you were doing. So for an unbeliever, all they've been doing is offending God and not worshiping Him. So repentance is they turn to God in adoration and worship. They called themselves a self-savior before God saved them, so they turn to God and say, God, save me, I cannot save myself. Repentance always has two directions. You turn from something to something. So if someone says, I've repented, but they haven't turned from something to something, they haven't repented. Repentance, you turn from sin to righteousness. You turn from your sin to the gospel. To say you turn from sin and you turn inward, or turn from sin to try and find a replacement Messiah, or turn from sin to relationships, you haven't repented. You turn from sin to Christ or sin to truth. That's repentance. Let me ask you something. Let's talk about this. What specific sin is he calling them to repent of? What specific sins? He just says repent, and they knew immediately. We know what we need to repent of. Unbelief. Unbelief in what? In, in what? No, I mean, I think you guys are on to it. Unbelief in what? What was Peter's sermon full of? All types of what? They need to repent of a refusal to take God at His word. They would not believe Scripture. Peter spoke to them three Old Testament passages that showed them they are willfully rejecting what has been written. Have you not heard? Jesus kept telling them. They're rejecting it. So unbelief in rejecting of the Scriptures. What else are they repenting of? One more thing. What did they do? What did Peter tell them two weeks ago that they did? What did they do to him? Let's look at it. 2, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God... Oh, let's go back. Sorry. I'm missing it. 26, thank you. 36, yep. Therefore, I was looking for the previous portion. Thank you, guys. See, you know, watch this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through wonders and signs. Look at this. You yourselves know he did all of this. and By the foreknowledge of God, he was sent, but he was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. You executed your Messiah. You're responsible. You did it. The Romans may have hung him up, but you were the ones that cheered them on, and you're the ones that put the put the, the conspiracy in place to get him executed. So they're also repenting of what? Repent of unbelief in the Scriptures and repentance of what? Their contribution to Jesus' execution. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about my evangelism and your evangelism. What we often say, we often tell people they need to repent of immorality. They need to leave their old life. They need to repent of their wickedness. That's all true. That's all the packaging of self-worship. But I was wondering sometimes if we shouldn't be saying to people also, You know what else you need to repent of? Every time you've heard a portion of Scripture and you have not softened your heart in faith. Every time you've read your Bible and you lived in your rebellion. Every time you lived as a hypocrite and named the name of Christ. Every time you've sat under a sermon and left like a double-minded man. 
Every time they have rejected the Scriptures, we ought to tell people, you also need to repent because God has graciously kept revealing Himself to you and you suppressed it. They say, well, I didn't hear the Bible that much. That's all right, Romans 1. He gave you creation. He's allowing air in your lungs. You're breathing His air and you're still suppressing Him. So we need to have people call them to repent of their suppression of the truth and unbelief in the Scriptures. And secondly, we should probably tell them in light of this, that they need to repent of their contribution to Jesus' execution. Say, so what do you mean? you imagine telling someone that? You also need to repent because you were part of executing the Messiah. Why? He was on the cross because of sin. <laughs> and your sin was part of the problem why He had to be nailed to a bloody wooden cross. On Golgotha, the reason He was there is because of sin. Are you a sinner? I am. I'm part of the reason He had to be there. You're part of the reason He had to be there. So you also need to repent of the fact and come to Him and say, I'm also responsible for your execution and your crucifixion. Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Man, that gets an unbeliever right down to the heart of their rebellion. My sin contributed to His crucifixion and execution. And my sin, I've been living in rejection of Scripture my whole life. What a wicked person I am. How much I need a Savior. Can you imagine that kind of sermon coming out at a large ministry that preaches soft messages? Can you imagine a guy even putting on a suit, walking up? I'm not saying a suit's more spiritual, but the cool guys walk the stage and do all their stuff, you know? And then they get up there, and what if one of those guys just stood back there, got behind his Bible, and preached that sermon? Maybe mass conversions in a church building. (laughs) Wow. So let me ask you guys. Have you experienced soul-piercing conviction that shattered you that led to your repentance? Have you seen your bankruptcy before a holy God and repented of your contribution to His cross and your sin, your suppression of truth? And have you really fleed to Christ as your only hope? And how you would know that is He would be precious to you. You would love Him with everything inside of you. Do we love Him perfectly? Of course not. Do we still sin? Of course. But your devotion would change. You'd turn from a devotion to self to devotion to Him. And in fact, the passage now unfolds with that type of terminology. Back to the narrative. Watch this. Those that repent and those that have soul-piercing conviction and then turn in repentance, watch this. Here's what He says to them. You want to know if that's genuine? Each of you that's repented, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about that. Forgiveness of sin. Past, present, future. Psalm 103.12 tells us that our sin is scattered as far as the east is to the west. He's removed our transgression from us. When you see your sin like that, and you see that type of forgiveness, all you can do is marvel and worship. But there's an interesting line here that may have confused you, and I just want to equip you. Notice what it says there. It almost reads like you repent, and then you get baptized, and if you're baptized, then that will lead to you having forgiveness of sins. As if there's a work that has to be done to contribute to our salvation, right? Uh, many false teachers over the millennia have went to this passage to say, baptism is essential for salvation. If you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Baptism is the work that... See, look, Peter says it right here. So what is going on in this passage? I just want to equip you for a moment. Well, there's actually, a, for you that like grammar, there's two ideas here. I'll give you a grammatical definition and then I'm going to give you a more simple definition. But those of you that like grammar, this is how this passage reads in the Greek text. This is how they would have read it 
those that were reading the original language. It read like this. All you all, everybody in the audience here, plural, repent, dot, 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 plural, for the forgiveness of your sins. And singular, each one of you that's repenting for the forgiveness of sins, go be baptized. So you got two plural ideas. The plural idea of repent, all of you, all y'all. Plural idea, forgiveness, singular, each one of you that are repenting, go get baptized. Now, if you're not into the grammar thing, just think of it this way. Baptism was so interconnected with the apostles' teaching on repentance that if a person was not willing to publicly be baptized as an outward symbol of their internal reality that their conscience has been clean, it would put into question whether their repentance was genuine. Repentance and baptism are so interconnected for the apostles that baptism here would be the outward sign of true repentance that confirmed an internal reality that they had been cleansed. So when they preach baptism repentance, they're just saying, if you're born again, you're going to want to go publicly declare what Christ has done in your life. That's a sign you're genuine. That's a sign you know you've repented. So, look at what happens then. You do all that, and you're genuine, and you've repented, and you want to be baptized and go public with it, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not a special temporary indwelling, beloved. This is the permanent indwelling. And what a gift. If you're here today, do you know what the Spirit does? He illuminates your mind. If you're here today and I'm preaching and truths are firing in your mind and, and, and lights are going on and you're thinking about truth and thinking about implications, that's the Spirit interceding and working in your mind. You have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 says, and He connects spiritual truths with spiritual thoughts in your thinking. What a ministry. This morning, if you're benefiting from the Word, the Spirit's working in your mind. That's a gift. How about clarity in your conscience where you had none? Immediate clarity on your disposition, your rebellion, and how you need to grow. It's progressive, and when we sin, we gunk it up. But a clear conscience has clarity. Illumination of your mind. How about the permanent sealing that you know you're always His and you can never be lost? What a gift that is. If you're saved here today, you can never be lost. Ever. There's no condemnation for those who have been sealed with the Spirit. How about this one? This is a big one. Power over sin. Before you had the Spirit and had that gift, this is a gift, he calls it, no power, no ability. You may have had short spurts and done little short sprints, but you were always back with the same rebellion. The gift of the Spirit gives you power. It's incredible. What a gift. You can imagine. Think about these... Jews that have been offending God. God's love is always contrasted when He talks about sin. Think about this. Here's all your rebellion, Jews. Here's the offering and repent. If you repent, here's all the blessings. God's just going to pour it on. What love? Notice, 39. For the promise is for you. Yes, you. You who executed the Messiah and rejected Him. This promise is for you. Can it be? You wonder if those who were sitting there in soul-piercing conviction were saying, Us? You would save us? We've been rejecting you. We came to town to have a little party festival and keep rejecting you. I wandered over to this building because I heard a loud sound and you're going to give me all this? Yes. How many of you were saved like that? Where you weren't supposed to be at the time you weren't supposed to be there and you didn't definitely choose it and God just said, soul-piercing conviction, here's the Word of God, I'm going to rescue your dead heart and make it live. Wow. What a mercy. Look at what he says. Quotes uh, Isaiah 57, 19 in part. Well, it's more of a reference than a quote. 
and your children and all who are far off. And then he quotes Joel 2.32 again. He had already done that. As many as the Lord God will call to Himself. For this promise then is for all you that will respond to the Gospel and repent of your sin. God will pour His grace upon you and not only you but generations to come when you spread out the truth to them. And any that will come to Him that He is calling, they're His. Any that will respond, they're His. That call there, call to Himself, notice it. The call to yourself is a call of evangelism and a call of drawing. The gospel's a call, and then God draws those people. It's both. Again, love of God and mercy is always in sharp release when soul-piercing conviction comes from your sin. Now, just, just think about this for a second. Look at verse 40. And watch what happens when repentance starts to take place. You want to say, what happens in a Christian's life? What happens in a true church? How would you know you've had soul-piercing conviction that led to repentance that proves you're genuine? Watch these early believers. I mean, watch what happens to them. Verse 40, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, Be saved from this perverse generation. Translation, leave the culture. Stop hanging out with your worldly friends. Stop your sinful lifestyle. Stop messing around with the things that offend your God. Stop living on the fringes of media and relationships and people. Leave the culture. Be saved. He preaches that after, as I'll show you in a moment. After his sermon, he says, leave the culture. Get out of there. 31. First thing you do is you leave the culture. Then, those who received His Word. That means people that are coming and repentant, they have full reception of the Scriptures. They love them. Then they're baptized, verse 41. Public declaration, you belong to Him. And then you're added to the church. 3,000 souls, they join the church, so you're accounted for under shepherds. And then what do you do if you're genuinely converted, baptized, left the culture, hating your sin, worshiping Christ? What's the obvious thing you do? Verse 42. You devote yourself to sound teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You devote yourself to sound doctrine. And what else? Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. You immerse yourself in body life in the church. 43, you're a worshiper and you have fear and trembling. Everyone kept sealing a sense of awe. And then 44, you start sharing your resources out of sacrificial love from your heart. They shared resources with others in need. Beloved, that's the reality of repentance. When someone truly is born again and gets changed, I know in our culture there may be a gap because we have this Christianized culture that acts like people can be saved and their life's going to be changed, they're not a part of a church. Your first set of Christians in Acts 2, when they were born again, they had a radical redirection that pulled them into the church, out of the culture, public baptism. You say, how significant was that baptism? Well, look down at verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there was about 3,000 souls added. Notice that little word there, they were baptized. And then I want you to look back and notice verse 41. um, Verse 38 says, Each was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now stop there for a second. You need to think about something. Just tune in with me about this. They had just come to Jerusalem as Jewish worshipers. When they came through, there was pools that were set out 
when they would come into town for Pentecost where they'd do a ceremonial cleansing. And so masses of people would go in these pools, they'd do a ceremonial cleansing as a sign they wanted to get themselves ready to worship God at Pentecost. And there was all these different pools scattered throughout Jerusalem. Um, There was a pool called the Pool of Siloam and the Pool of Bethsaida, and there was a few others. So think about this. They would come in to be worshipped in those, to, to be cleansed in those. Now these brand new believers go from this sermon back to those pools. Some 3,000 3, plus, as I'll show you in a moment. There was probably way more than 3,000 saved. They go back to those pools. Well, who's in those pools? All their buddies that they traveled to town with. All the other false worshipping Jews. And now they're in the waters of baptism publicly and they're being baptized not in the God of the Old Testament to be ceremonial cleansed, in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? We wimp out on a Sunday evening in front of all of our friends. They might have been 12 feet from a false worshiper snarling at them and they're being dunked and immersed and coming up and saying, I'm baptized in the name of my new Messiah. I now realize I am the true Israel. I've rejected the old religion. I've rejected the old Judaism. I now stand with Jesus Christ, the God-man. When He died... 50 days ago, he was really the God, the one sent. And I believe that and I executed him and I stand here today publicly before my enemies and my friends. Jesus is Lord. Wow. No wonder their repentance was so radical. Think about that. That's amazing. Now you say, where in the world? How are you going to get 3,000 plus dunked? They must have spread out. They must have spread out a lot. And there was 120 that were there with the 12. So there must have been some other leaders. And they must have just started spreading out and having mass baptisms. But what a testimony to Jerusalem. Wow. That's real repentance. One other thing. 3,000 here. It's a lot more than 3,000. Actually, it seems. If you look over at Acts 4. Look at Acts 4 really quick. We've got another set of conversions. Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. It's very likely the 3,000 that being counted is actually men. So you've got 3,000 men. They counted in the Old Testament oftentimes through the men. The book of Acts starts counting men. It's very likely that this right here was counting men. And we know that as well because this was probably just men and men in the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because through the book of Acts, you start seeing believers spread out and scholars go, how did those believers get saved? How did they get there? What if there hadn't been a missionary journey there yet? Well, think about it. Remember, you had people coming from all the way around the globe, all the way out to Greece, and they would have been sitting there in that sermon. So it seems more than likely that 3,000 men were saved and people from their families and then people that weren't part of the Jerusalem church were also saved and they went back to their homes as the first evangelists back in their hometown. And when the gospel starts to spread, God's already doing a work to people that were saved that day. This is an amazing amount of conversions spreading out. Through preaching on sin, the Spirit working, a faithful vessel, God saves the name of Jesus Christ. Our time's gone, but I just want you to look at verse 40 again. Verse 40, and I'm going to get into it next week. It's actually background material. So imagine the sermon finishing. He's calling them to be saved. He's calling them to repent and come to Christ. He's calling them to, to, to be baptized. And then he says this, and I already read it to you. Be saved from this perverse generation. And it says... 
He solemnly testified. And look, notice the grammar. Kept on exhorting them. It's giving background material. He kept on saying, if you've come to Christ, if you've come to know Him, then we need to talk to you about how you literally pull yourself and extract yourself from your false worship, from your Judaism, and immerse yourself in the life of the church. That's encouraging in one sense. So he's not just saying, hey, they got it. He's saying, as they kept on getting instructed, they kept extracting themselves more and more from the things that polluted the righteousness that had now been born in their heart. And next week, I'm going to talk about that, who they are. So, time is gone. Here it is. Beloved, Luke wants us to never forget that power from ministry comes through the Spirit, through the preaching, preaching on sin, the radical nature of conversion, and when God does that, He births true converts, and those converts become the church. And right here, next week, we are going to look at and study the first version of a healthy church. It emerges from here. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for Acts 2. Thanks for that incredible, inspired edition of church history. Lord, I I just love how much gospel truth you put in here. I pray any here today, Lord, that don't know you, that have not experienced soul-penetrating conviction that you'd save them, that they'd repent, that they'd turn to you, that we would see more people in the waters of baptism as a sign that they've left the old life and joined you. And I pray, Lord, that we would not capitulate to the culture that tells us that we're too definitive or too dogmatic or that we're unloving when we preach on sin. Until people see their corruption, you show us here, there's no way they'll cry out to you. So I pray we'd be faithful to that and uh, we're thankful for such a clear description of the first church. May we be those that walk in a way that's consistent with how the early church walked as they first came to know and love you. In your name, amen.